Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, welcome back from your weekends. Uh, we have a couple of things to talk about today that are sort of weekend related. One of them uh, is uh, daylight savings time, which we will talk about in the second sec- session. Uh, I think there's more of, with each passing year, there's more of an indigenous rebellion against these time changes. So we'll talk a little bit more uh, with the guest uh, about that and what it is actually we're rebelling against, uh, because it's unclear whether it's daylight savings time or standard time. Uh, but at the beginning here, we want to talk about one of the most talked about articles of the past week or so, uh, the article by Jane Mayer in uh, The New Yorker, Trump TV. Fox News has always been partisan, but has it become propaganda? This has occasioned, among other things, a decision uh, by the Democratic National Committee Uh, based on their reading of this story, um, to keep Fox News out of Democratic debates, presidential debates, in the coming season. So uh, joining us now, we're going to actually have two guests to talk about this. We're going to start out with someone uh, you, I hope, have become familiar with by now, Margaret Sullivan, who's been with us many times, media columnist for The Washington Post. And a little bit later in this interview, uh, Margaret and I will be joined by Blair Levin, uh, who's uh, formerly of the FCC, uh, chief of staff there, and now senior fellow, senior, senior fellow with Brookings. Margaret Sullivan, welcome back to our airwaves. Thank you very much, Colin. Always nice to talk with you and your audience. So let's um, maybe just start with the subhead of Jane Mayer's article. Uh, you've written about this. Fox News has always been partisan, but has it become propaganda? Propaganda is sort of a weird word, but there's certainly a way in which there's a, a coordination of message uh, between the Trump White House and Fox that isn't the normal one, right? No, it is not normal. There's really kind of a it's been described as a merger between the two that they are so closely intertwined. It's hard to know at sometimes, you know, where one begins and the other one ends. You know, for example, the president will commonly watch Fox and Friends in the morning and then he'll start tweeting from from that. And sometimes that creates news. And then sometimes Fox covers that news. So it's this kind of Mobius strip, you know, just sort of never ending back and forth. And one other of many aspects of this is his close relationship with the primetime host, Sean Hannity, who has actually joined him um, at rallies or a rally on stage as if he were campaigning for the president. And, you know, they talk every day. So a very close relationship. There right. Too. I think he also at one point may have used his own plane to transport Trump to something he needed to get to during the campaign before he had Air Force <clears> One. <throat> but let's hear that rally. So this is I think I'm locating this in the right place. I believe it's in Missouri. I believe it is the last Trump rally of the midterm stretch. So he's barnstorming around the country, campaigning for various local candidates. He's in Missouri, and suddenly he summons Sean Hannity to the stage. Mr. President, I I did an opening monologue today, and I had no idea you were going to invite me up here. And the one thing that has made and defined your presidency more than anything else, promises made, promises kept. Four and a half million new American jobs, 4.3 million Americans off food stamps, Four million Americans out of poverty. 
and we're not dropping cash loads of cargo planes of cash to Iranian mullahs that chant death to America. So um, in the world of what now is called legacy media, Margaret, I mean, it's getting more and more confusing uh, with the rise of cable channels, with the rise of digital media, where the bright lines are. But this seems to cross one. I mean, if Jennifer Rubin did this for The Washington Post or I don't know, <laughs> Lester Holt did it for uh, NBC News, I mean, you get fired for stuff like this. Absolutely. And, you know, even Fox News, which I don't think has a department of standards like many news organizations do, even Fox News said that this was over the line and they, you know, there was a tap on the wrist for Sean Hannity because, you know, news people and even though Sean Hannity calls himself, he goes back and forth between calling himself a journalist and not. It's way over the line, I mean, to actually get up there and start saying wonderful things about the president who is campaigning up there. So, yeah, it was pretty bad. So what's happened here, too, I think, is because of this strange mutual interdependence. And and Mayer argues, I think, that Trump is more influenced by Fox than Fox is influenced by Trump. But the Trump sees things on Fox. He will sometimes uh, alter his stance, tweet something different. There are also sort of structural questions about whether White House policy towards the communications industry in general uh, is also influenced by Trump's tremendous sense of dependence and loyalty uh, to Fox. You know, in that sense, it it gets harder and harder to hold Fox reporting to any conventional standards. I guess it's not so much the reporting because it's there's sort of a division between reporting and opinionating. And as you point out, there's some very good reporters there, too. But but it just seems as though, once again, you have almost a completely different narrative about facts and conditions, whether it's Seth Rich or the caravan coming up from Central America than you do in the rest of the media. Comment? You do. Yeah. You do. And, you know, some people will say, well, that's great. We need a different point of view. Well, we may well need a different point of view, but what we don't need and can't countenance is a different set of facts. And that too often is where Fox News is going, is with their own sets of facts, so-called alternative facts, I guess, that don't really correspond to the real facts. So, you know, that's where the rubber hits the road. And and I also don't think that there is a strong, clear division between the opinion sorts, you know, the Tucker Carlson's and the Sean Hannity's and what's reported all day during, you know, the news cycle. They, they often sort of bleed into each other and support each other, you know, and that can have to do with the way stories are framed and the way stories are chosen and and you know, the kinds of people you quote, all of that stuff enters into it. This uh, mayor piece, which has occasioned so much conversation, and uh, we'll come to uh, what it's uh, occasioned uh, in the Democratic National Committee. Reading it, I'm not sure that I saw very many things that I didn't already know. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. the impact of it is that, that it's in aggregate a bunch of stuff that we kind of have in a much more gradual way become aware of. Absolutely. I mean, I I felt that way reading it, too. I mean, that may be because we're paying a lot of attention to this. But for one thing, it's very it was very ambitious piece. It's 11,000 words, which is really, really long. And very Jane Mayer has a great reputation as an investigative reporter. And The New Yorker is is well respected. So it's kind of a combination of this big picture look at this subject that did break some news and that pulled it all into one place 
and, you know, made it kind of impossible to ignore that got all the attention. When it's iterative, kind of the way we've been finding out about things in bits and pieces or, or reading something here or there, it's less powerful. Right. I think you just, you say that it did break some news. Uh, news that it broke for me, I don't know if this had ever rep- appeared anywhere else, uh, was that one of their reporters, Diane Falzone, uh, had actually begun to close in on the, more than begun to close in, had basically wrapped up the Stormy Daniels story and was not able to get it on the air. I certainly hadn't seen that anywhere. And we usually talk about Fox News in terms of the stories that they do push, not the stories that they don't. This would be, I, I think, a kind of news, right? You know, it, it actually was reported once before by Oliver Darcy on CNN, but it didn't get much attention. And so it got much more attention when Jane Mayer put it in this New Yorker piece. And she may have had some details that that CNN didn't have. But, you know, that certainly did get a lot of attention. And now Diane Falzone is trying to get out of her gag order, her non-disclosure agreement, so that she can take legal action, uh, effective legal action about this story. And it is startling to think that just before the election, this kind of thing would have been held back for political reasons, if that is in fact the case. I mean, another thing that we knew and knew in just a gradual way is the way in which positions in the White House and positions at Fox News uh, have become kind of interchangeable. I mean, this is nothing new. I mean, George Stephanopoulos went from a position in the Clinton White House eventually to his role at ABC. I mean, we could name lots of other instances Mm -hmm. of this. But there's a way in which it's almost more like a flock of birds changing roosts. Uh, I mean, when you look at all of them, all of the people from the White House who wound up over at Fox and then the reverse of that, you really do see a different or at least a different magnitude of a revolving door. Right. It's less a revolving door than just sort of a straight up corridor, you know, just walk down the hall and go to another room. And I think, you know, one of the most notable examples of that was that Bill Shine, who after Roger Ailes left Fox, uh, fell from grace and and left the, the network that he had founded, Bill Shine became the chief honcho at Fox. And then he went over to the White House to become Donald Trump's uh, communications czar and his deputy chief of staff. And now Shine has just left. And, you know, Trump goes through communications directors very quickly. He's on his, I guess, sixth one now. But that was a case of, you know, it was sort of startling to think that Bill Shine, who had, you know, been called complicit in some of the sexual harassment and sexual misconduct problems at Fox, uh, that he would be brought over to the White House in such a high position. And now the fact that he's gone, I think, has probably less to do with this New Yorker piece, although the timing might have pushed it a little bit, but more to do with the fact that President Trump really wants great press all the time, and Shine was not able to make that happen because it's impossible. So let's uh, just quickly take a look at uh, the the news that broke most recently. As apparently, uh, the Democratic National Committee had pretty much the same reaction, which is they knew all this stuff. They'd just never seen it all collected up in one place before. Uh, here's uh, what uh, DNC Chair Tom Perez said about that. It's a dog bites man story that Sean Hannity and some of the high ups at, uh, uh, at Fox News are, are colluding and collaborating all the time. But this isn't about 
the the other side, the Lou Dobbs, the the Sean Hannity side. This is about, and, and this New Yorker report was about interference at the highest levels of right, Fox yeah. News. No, we read it. We were in read Mayor's the news report. Side. The question and, is, how are you making it better by doing this? You knew the president was going to respond this way, tit for tat. You say you want a big tent. Why cut off the potential oh. audience? Well, listen, uh, yeah, I'm sure the president cleared that tweet with Fox News. So that's uh, Tom Perez talking to Chris Cuomo about the decision of the DNC uh, not to let Fox uh, host debates, uh, Democratic debates anyway. Um, I mean, obviously, the DNC is going to do whatever it wants to do. Um, sometimes in the press, we we will say, wow, it's weird that you're excluding such and such. It's weird that you're decredentialing somebody. I, I don't know. I sense reading your piece, Margaret, that this decision by them doesn't really trouble you. I mean, it, you know, it's not really for me to say what the DNC should do, but I can understand it, and I think it seems it seems reasonable to me. If, in fact, Fox News has become state TV for the Trump administration, why would the Democratic National Committee do business with them? It doesn't make a lot of sense, and it's not as if, you know, I've heard the argument, well, you know, you're missing all those Fox viewers. Don't you want them to come over and, you know, be familiar with the candidates that the Democratic Party is is offering? And, you know, that's that's a legit argument. But I think that people can actually change the channel if they want to. If they can't change the channel from Fox News, they're probably not going to vote for anyone other than Donald Trump. So, you know, I don't think there's a huge loss there. And, you know, this makes sense to me because there probably need to be some consequences or effect of everything that Fox News does day after day. And, you know, as I said in, in a column I wrote recently, Chris Wallace is a great interviewer. Uh, Shepard Smith and Brett Baer are perfectly uh, reality-based anchors. They've got a couple, you know, or more than a couple good reporters. But overall, uh, Fox News has kind of morphed over into something pretty close to propaganda. And, you know, I can't understand why uh, anyone would have trouble understanding, what, you know, the DNC's reaction to yeah. that. I would agree. I mean, I, I, Britt Baer came here to Connecticut and moderated the uh, one of the, I think it was the Linda McMahon, Dick Blumenthal debates and did, a, I thought, a pretty good job. But he's mm -hmm. in a sort of a class by himself or a very small class. Hey, exactly. we're, we're talking to Margaret Sullivan, a media columnist for The Washington Post. We want to add to our conversation Blair Levin, senior fellow with the Brookings Institution's Metropolitan Policy Program, former chief of staff for Federal Communications uh, Commission Chairman Reed Hunt during the Clinton administration. I should say Blair and I were also college classmates. Hi, Blair. Hey, how are you? Good. So uh, one Good. thing that I want to uh, ask you a little bit, well, actually, based on something that Margaret said, uh, let me go here first. Uh, she said, you know, the, the, it's maybe a positive if sometimes there are consequences for the some of the behavior that Fox News has, which departs significantly from journalistic canons or, or even the vetting of truth. But what, one thing we should say is that as a cable news entity, there are probably almost no governmental consequences that can ever be imposed. That's correct. It's, uh, as a cable news channel, it is not regulated by the government in the same way that a broadcast news channel is. But also, even if it was a broadcast news channel, I'm not sure that the government could actually do that much without impinging on the First Amendment. 
Right. And political speech enjoys a, a very special uh, level of protection. But one thing that you, right. you were quoted in the Jane Mayer article a bunch of times. I was very proud of you. So one of the things that you said early on was that this isn't necessarily simply a case of an alternative conservative point of view uh, that's embodied in this different and fairly new still network, because lots of other people have tried to do that, simply conservative public policy. Uh, I'll quote you to yourself. The genius was seeing that there's an attraction to fear-based, anger-based politics that has to do with class and race. One thing that I've been thinking about, and I'd love to hear both you and Margaret on this, is it's one of the things that I think we in the press didn't get during the 2016 election, particularly during the primary season, where it seemed as though conventional Republican candidates could get traction against Donald Trump. I now think it's because so many of those voters, those primary voters, were watching Fox News and seeing a very, and they were energized in a very different way. I think in a really interesting way, Fox News created the audience for Trump, and he just kind of understood that better than anyone else in the race and took advantage of that. I think when you look at what was Fox News covering the most in the two weeks in the run-up to 2014 midterms, it was Ebola. Uh, it was totally fear-based. It was totally race-based. And, um, you know, the day after the election, they stopped covering it. So it's that kind of creation of fear that keeps people coming back to the channel. And in an interesting way, is similar to some of the criticisms of Facebook and some of the other social media platforms that play on that which addicts us, uh, which is not generally, shall we say, good news. <laughs> it's more in the nature of playing to people's fears. And that is an incredible business model. And that was, I think, the key to their success. Um, I'm going to pop Blair on hold for a second. I'm going to see if I, we can clear up that phone line. But, Margaret, I want you to talk a little bit about this, too. As I review all of the things that I didn't understand in 2015 and 2016, I think the Fox News impact might have been— I mean, it's, I, I, I think most analysts now would say, even if the Republican establishment had been able to coalesce around a more conventional candidate like Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio, there still might have been a problem because they didn't understand what Fox had done to radicalize their voter base. Yeah, you know, Fox, it's, it's very interesting. It's like they've both created a need and fulfilled the need. So, you know, Fox News was actually invented in 1996. You know, although the tag was fair and balanced, it really was meant to become kind of an, an outrage machine. And it has become more and more so, in my opinion. So as people get into this sort of thing, they turn to Fox, and Fox fulfills the need that it, in fact, helped to create. But it was already underway. The need or desire for it was already underway from talk radio, Rush Limbaugh, and that whole world. And, you know, that continues. So there's now a kind of a whole ecosystem around um, around this kind of desire on the part of some, uh, I can't call them news consumers, but on the part of some Americans to wallow in this. So Blair Levin, the other thing, one of the many other things the mayor piece gets into is how this symbiotic relationship between the Trump White House and Fox News affects the conduct of government agencies, ranging from the FCC to the Justice Department. Um, she highlights three examples in which maybe the federal government behaved in a way that that sought an advantage or sought to preserve an advantage uh, for Fox News in a way that it, it previously would not have. Do, do you think she made that case pretty effectively? 
Yes, I do, and I think it's a really interesting case. The Department of Justice has acted on three things that have a direct relationship to Fox News' business model. Number one, they tied up their biggest competitor, CNN, for a year on litigation. The most antitrust scholars, including the head of the antitrust division, Macon Delphine, when he was a professor, thought there simply was not even a, there was no credible case. Secondly, they said no to the, or the DO, uh, the FCC said no to Sinclair buying a bunch of other broadcast stations where Sinclair consciously was saying they wanted to create a competitor to Fox News. And third, they let Disney buy a lot of Fox, which is what Lucas Murdoch wanted, in incredible record speed and not focusing at all on the uh, certain issues such as the Disney studio combining with the Fox studio, which is two of the biggest studios. Each of those decisions on their own can be justified without reference to Rupert Murdoch, but it is just amazing how how well Murdoch does. And I will say as one who has been, shall we say, in opposition to him on a couple of things when I was at the FCC, his ability to manipulate a political process without leaving any fingerprints is unparalleled. So uh, we're going to have to kind of wrap up here. Um, um, Margaret, uh, in a way, a lot of this devolves into an amazing conversation, if that's the right word, that has gone on uh, during the run-up to the Trump presidency and then the presidency itself. And that is, what's legitimate news? Uh, the president has his own opinion, which is that CNN and other people who oppose him are fake news. He has done a lot of things to try to le- delegitimize the conventional press and call it the enemy of the people. But meanwhile, there's a kind of journalism going on with Fox News, whether they're covering the Seth Rich story or the so-called uranium scandal involving uh, Hillary Clinton that strikes some of us as not entirely legitimately vetted and argued news stories. Are we just sort of doomed to that particular back and forth now? Well, you know, it has its constituency, but I also know that places like the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Committee to Protect Journalists and ProPublica and other I think, legitimate and very good news organizations and advocacy organizations for journalism have seen a lot of support come from uh, the American public. So, you know, there's certainly a constituency that wants and supports Fox News, and there's a lot of people who understand that good journalism costs money to do, that it has to be done right, that standards have to be upheld. And we're not perfect. Absolutely. We make mistakes and we need to correct those mistakes and fess up to them and be transparent. But that's a whole different thing than uh, what Fox News is doing. All right. We're going to have to stop there. We would thank uh, very much like to thank Margaret Sullivan, media columnist for The Washington Post, Blair Levin, senior fellow with the Brookings Institution's Metropolitan Policy Program. We're going to come back after this break and talk about something that's troubling you maybe even more than Fox News, and that is the time shift. And you ain't fooling anyone except maybe at Fox News because it's based. It seems to me are easy to mislead and confuse. All right, we're back. You know, we describe this show, The Monday Scramble, as being, you know, an effort really to cope with things that happened over the weekend. And what could be more happened over the weekend-ish than the time change, right? So we're going to talk about that right now. We're going to talk about it with somebody who's been on our show before, although usually to talk about the courts, 
and the law. Um, actually, everybody who's been on the show today has been on the show before, which makes me think we may have hit some point where we've had everybody that we want to have on the show, and we'll just now have those people over and over again, which is fine by me. Mark Joseph Stern, certainly anything he writes about the courts and the law, you should be reading. I always do. But now he's writing about a slightly different topic, and that would be the shift from standard time to daylight savings time. Welcome back to our show, uh, Mark Joseph Stern, journalist for Slate, if I didn't already say that part. Thank you so much. Happy to be back on as a repeat offender. Okay. So um, your article is terrific. And it's, of course, the kind of article that annoys people because it's full of all kinds of facts and truths that get in the way of them running their mouths. So let's start with the, the, the misprision that people commit the most, which is they say, I hate daylight savings time, but they don't really mean it. Yes, although I will say that the number one error is probably the one you just made, which is that they say daylight savings oh, yeah. time mm-hmm. instead of the correct term, which is daylight saving time. Uh, it's not a bank account. It's not a savings <laughs> account. There's no S on the saving. Uh, so that pedantry aside, uh, the number two error people make is that they say they hate it, uh, and they usually say this, of course, when the clock shifts uh, in March and November. In November, November, we fall back one hour. In March, we spring forward. We just experienced that. Uh, and I've noticed as a veteran of Twitter uh, that every single year uh, during both shifts, people tend to blame daylight saving time. And more than that, uh, particularly when we fall back uh, in, in November, people claim that we are entering daylight saving time. I understand why that, why that mistake occurs. It is an easy one to make. Uh, but the reality is that in November, we fall back into standard time for four months. And in March, we spring forward into daylight saving time for eight months. So if you like it when the sun stays out for longer, if you like those later summer afternoons, then you like daylight saving time. And if you hate it when the sun goes down earlier and you hate those dark early winter afternoons, what you really hate is standard time. Right. So um, and, and a key to our preferences, or at least a tip-off to our preferences, might be the fact that when we have ever changed anything, we have changed it in favor of the expansion of daylight saving time. So in, the, in World War II, Roosevelt made it permanent uh, daylight saving time for about three years, I think. And legislatively, we've expanded the length of daylight saving time several times. That would be probably an indication. In other words, we started daylight saving time earlier and earlier. I think it used to start in April. So that would be a hint that we like it better. Yes, absolutely. Another hint is the uh, move in the states toward permanent daylight saving time. Uh, Florida has passed legislation that would institute year-round daylight saving time uh, pending federal approval. Uh, California voters uh, in 2018 passed a proposition that allows the legislature to institute permanent daylight saving time, Uh, although that uh, proposition was wrongly labeled by a number of outlets uh, as uh, abolishing daylight saving time, which illustrates the uh, confusion in this area. Uh, But the states are really moving 
moving toward permanent DST, and the roadblock is the federal government because uh, under the current law, the federal government has to approve states' clock changes. States can't go off on their own, uh, and for some reason, it's not entirely clear why, the feds are dragging their feet on letting the people keep the sun out for longer. All right, so in, in a way... This question divides into two parts, and we've, we're kind of answering the second part first, which is which thing do people prefer if there has to be this horological hokey pokey in which we put our right foot in and then we take our right foot out. So let's ask, let's ask the first part of that question. Is there any reason for there ever to be a time shift? In other words, is there a persuasive argument that we should do any kind of time changing at all? short answer is no. Uh, the slightly longer answer is that theoretically, standard time is slightly better for farmers who allegedly are able to do more work earlier in the morning when the sun comes out earlier as it does during standard time. Uh, and also there is a theory that uh, daylight saving time conserves energy because we don't have to turn on our light bulbs uh, as early in the afternoon. The sun stays out longer. So the, the theoretical underpinning of our current system is that farmers get uh, sort of a third of a loaf from November through March, uh, and then the rest of us uh, get to enjoy the other eight months of sunshine and conserve energy. Uh, the reality is that all of that is nonsense. Um, there's not really any strong evidence that farmers prefer standard time today. Uh, regardless, the number of farmers in this country has plummeted, and most industrial farmers really are not relying on an extra hour of sunshine in the morning to do their work. Uh, furthermore, given today's very energy-efficient light bulbs, uh, it seems that daylight saving time does not save any energy at all. It is pretty much a wash. So this whole system uh, is, is basically set up for non-existent justifications. We continue to toil under it, but there's no real reason for it. And that's why I think the debate should be not whether this system should still exist. It's basically indefensible, but which time we should adopt as our year-round time. Right. And let's just continue for a moment on that theme of indefensibility. So the other thing that we know, as well, there are many other things that we know. One of the other things that we know is that a certain amount of time, potentially productive time, which could have been spent with cows and pigs or whatever it is that you do your work with, is spent adjusting various timepieces and things that have timekeeping mechanisms in them. And there's two kinds of things that are difficult to adjust, new things and old things. I mention old things because our producer, Scott Breedy, has a grandfather clock, an old Seth Thomas uh, grandfather clock, and apparently it's not good to adjust it while it's in operation. So they actually have to let it wind down so that they can reset the hands for one or the other of the time changes. But you point out in your piece also, there's all kinds of things, little devices around the house and in the car that they're not even particularly intuitive about how you're going to reset their, their time. Right. You hit the clock button on the microwave and it sort of thrusts you into this endless 
cycle of pushing the wrong buttons and accidentally starting the microwave. Uh, it's very unfortunate that we spend so long on these silly little tasks. And I would add that the Supreme Court has also struggled with this. Uh, several years ago, when the time shifted, the official clock in the Supreme Court, which advocates use to sort of measure and meet out their argument time, went totally haywire. It started spinning in the wrong direction, and the Chief Justice had to start by saying, please disregard the clock, uh, which was then edited out of the official audio for the day. The whole thing is an embarrassment. It's silly. It doesn't need to happen. And leaving aside the timepiece issue, there's a fair amount of evidence that when we spring forward and lose that hour of sleep, heart attacks go up, fatal car crashes go up, work-related accidents go up. It's just bad for everybody to lose that hour. And so instead of doing that, let's just, as I say in my piece, adopt DST year-round and leave it at that. Right. And uh, this is a compl- First of all, I like the way you just melded your Supreme Court coverage into <laughs> your clock coverage. But So this is a completely unscientific example based on anecdotal evidence. But my Fitbit today is... I think it might have combined two different days or something. I mean, it is ascribing to me almost these superhuman uh, calorie-burning powers, which I happen to know I don't have. So it could this could be yet another device that is confused by all the messages that it's getting. Uh, however, this is a, a sample size of one, so who knows? So, um, okay, so that's... Uh, I think we've completed the argument toward indefensibility of having any time shift at all. Now, in terms of keeping it at daylight saving time, I'm completely with you on this. And I used to have a show, a drive time show that ran from three to six. And when I would get off the air after the switch to back to standard time and it would be so dark, I would be so sad. Um, but apart from this sort of emotive and aesthetic feeling that some of us have, is there a case to be made that DST is better? Uh, you know, I think the answer, sadly, is probably not really outside of our emotions yeah. uh, and what we prefer as human beings. Uh, like I said, the case for energy saving is kind of a wash, right? Uh, and, and there is a study that shows that crime seems to fall, outdoor crime specifically, uh, like petty burglary, larceny, theft, that kind of thing, seems to fall when we spring forward into daylight saving time and remain lower during daylight saving time, which indicates that the sun staying out longer may sort of keep criminals off the street. It may prevent this petty theft because, of course, we're all able to see what's going on for longer. That is uh, the strongest case uh, to be made objectively. But I would argue that the emotive case is important, too. I mean, we are not vampires. We like sunshine. We are made to enjoy and, in fact, need sunshine for our well-being and mental health. A lot of us, myself included, uh, struggle with seasonal affective disorder and have to plant ourselves under sun lamps every morning during the dreaded standard time shift to keep us from going crazy when the sun sets at 5 p.m. or even earlier. So I think it is not, uh, it's not really uh, a frivolous argument to say that enjoying sunshine is important, and any little policy change that lets us get more of it is a policy change worth exploring. Right. Another point you make in your piece, and I don't want to overlook this, is the school argument, which is that you don't want kids going to school in the dark. Uh, your point is it's not, once again— a product of 
how we set our clocks so much as it is a product of our insane attitude about when school should start. Exactly. The, the Centers for Disease Control, the American Academy of Pediatrics, all, all of the experts agree that no school for younger children or older children or teens should start before 8.30 a.m. That should be the absolute floor, and, and ideally schools might start later than that. Uh, that. That teens suffer chronic sleep deprivation if schools start earlier than that. That younger children are actually able to learn less because their brains are functioning slower earlier in the morning. Uh, so it, it's not the fault of DST. Uh, that when we switch forward that kids are going to school in the dark. That is the fault of our crazy school policies that are forcing children to wake up super early and start trying to learn when their brains are resistant to learning. So, uh, you know, I understand parents who are frustrated every March when we spring forward and their kids are, are taking the bus in the dark. I get it. But again, like you say, we shouldn't blame DST for that. We should blame our school districts. So I have one last question. Why, Mark Joseph Stern? Why? <laughs> By which I mean, like nobody likes this. Nobody's happy today. Nobody's happy in November when the time change gets made. Donald Trump, with whom I don't agree about anything, has tweeted today, making daylight saving time permanent is okay with me. So what? why? Why, Mark <laughs> Joseph Stern? Why? What is stopping us from returning to a happier state? So I think one issue is just, that we like what we are used to. And even though we all seem to complain about the clocks, uh, uh, you know, when we spring forward and fall back, it is what we, what we grew up with, most of us. Uh, it's what we're accustomed to. Um, and I think that there's just a certain amount of sentimentality that drives us to prefer stasis in these situations. Uh, that's just a guess. Uh, another reason is government inertia. Uh, it, it took a really long time to create the current system to make a, a, a country where it is daylight saving time a majority of the year. Uh, and, and even that was, you know, there was a lot of fighting against farmers who said, oh, we have to spend our time in the early morning sunshine with our pigs and whatever. Uh, and, and so this other change, it will require the federal government to actually do something new. Uh, and, and it will require cooperation with the states, many of which are going to go their own way. And there is a, a possibility here, uh, in fact, a very strong possibility, that if the federal government starts approving these changes by states, we we will have a kind of crazy patchwork of time in this country um, where you can't really count on it being the same hour when you cross state lines, even if you're just going between like Florida and Georgia. Uh, and so I think people are scared of what's going to happen in this brave new world. People are scared to experiment with the clocks any more than we already do. Uh, and to which I say it really can't get any worse than where we are now. But that argument doesn't convince everybody. And unfortunately, people like you and me are going to go have to go out on our soapboxes and tell the truth um, because, again, the majority of the country might be with us, but they're silent for now. All right. And on that slightly discouraging note, uh, <laughs> we will conclude our conversation with Mark Joseph Stern. You'll usually be reading him in Slate.com about the courts and the law, but today it has been about daylight and the lack thereof. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining my crusade. All right. So let me tell you about what's going to happen next. First of all, I just got to do this thing over here. Okay. So let me tell you what's going to happen next, which is that um, 
Well, actually, what's going to really happen literally next is we're going to take a little break. When we come back, uh, there's room for phone calls. And if you would like to talk about the daylight savings, saving time uh, issue, uh, I would be happy to do that. If you even want to backtrack to the Fox News thing that we began the show with, I'd be happy to do that. I have other things which I am prepared to bring up uh, if you don't call in immediately about one of those things or about something else. What I'm telling you it is, is that for the remainder of the show, because I like to do this on Mondays, we have what we might refer to as open phones. So you may call 860-275-7266. I mean, the most obvious thing to call about would be about this time change stuff, except that I feel like there's just such unanimity about this. Is there anybody, anybody who really goes, oh, great, I get to reset my clock. <laughs> I can't wait. My favorite weekend of the year, 860-275-7266. But if there's other stuff you want to talk about as well, we can get into that too. I am prepared, I think, maybe. Anyway, 860-275-7266. And we'll take a break. We'll come back. Your sweet love brings me around. Gonna be a long Monday. Sitting all alone on a mountain by a river that has no end. Gonna be a long Monday. Stuck like a tick of a clock. It's come unwound again. Today's show was produced by Scott Breedy, who started working on it at 11 p.m. on Saturday, but then suddenly it was 1 a.m. on Sunday, so he lost the whole show and had to start over. Also by me, Kion Wolf. I have no idea what time it is, so I just sit in this studio and somebody jostles me when there's something to do. Amanda Fish is on tuna time. Digital guru Carlos the Mejiasaurus Mejia doesn't know what time it is because dinosaurs don't tell time. The part of Bill Curry was played by Doctor Who. On tomorrow's show, does our love of vampire and zombie pop culture have anything to do with the rise of political extremism? And now, back to Colin. All right. There are many calls coming in. None of them appear to be exactly ready to be consumed. Uh, so I'm just going to wait a second. I'm going to tell you about a couple of things that we have coming up here. First of all, one thing is that uh, I'm going to be doing one of those uh, things I do at Watkinson. They're called Freshly Squeezed on April 3rd, a Wednesday. It's going to be about astronomy. We are very lucky to have a very s distinguished astronomer, uh, John Gianforte, who um, also is the he, well, he's at the University of New Hampshire. He's going to come down and join us at Watkinson School, um, and we are going to. And he also is the guy the Weather Channel uses to explain astronomical concerns. So, um, but what I'm looking for right now is an amateur astronomer. We're going to have three people on the panel. I would like one of them to be somebody who just has a passion for it, uh, just a passion for the sky. And if you get a little extra money, you upgrade your telescope, that kind of thing. So if that's you, consider contacting me uh, at Colin at WNPR.org. That would be an easy way to do it. Or if you know somebody, you know, rat them out to me, something like that, because I do a need to, uh, to get, have that person. Um, well, that's all I'll talk about for the future right now, because there's a lot of people who did call up and I want to get them on the air. Here's Charlie in Glastonbury, who has agreed to go first. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Colin. How are you? I'm fine. Uh, thanks for letting me ask a question here. I was hoping you would consider a future show on a, on a topic about why we can't increase the number of representatives in the House of Representatives. It's been frozen for quite a while, and I think uh, it would be a very good topic to discuss. And also, uh, 
if that's not possible, why we can't have larger districts with multiple representatives from each district as an option as well. Now, what would be the upside of this? I'm trying to wrap my mind around this, and it, I'm fatigued from the time change, so you're going to have to help me here. Uh, well, uh, first of all, um, the number of, of uh, large states, we're, we're stuck with more people being uh, Represented by each representative, number one. Mm-hmm. I see. And, oh, I see the argument you're making. Okay, so make it uh, apportion it more fairly. Yes. All right. Yes. The first thing that I would, I think that's an interesting thing. It's certainly something we could explore. It's a great idea. The first place I would start, though, because people forget about this. If Puerto Rico were a state, it would probably have. Well, it would have two U.S. senators, obviously, and it would have probably five representatives. Puerto Rico is almost identical in size and population to Connecticut. So whatever Connecticut has, Puerto Rico is a pretty good fit. These are citizens of the United States. I mean, the, the argument you make, Charlie, is a good one, but these are people who have zero representation right now, which is absolutely repugnant. Uh, so, I mean, either they should be made into—I mean, three million or so people— I don't know why isn't that a state, and if it's even if it's not going to be a state, why aren't they represented uh, the way other people, uh, or the way the rest of us are? So think about that. Think about a change that changing that one thing, if you if you did it the whole way, would add two senators and five representatives, uh, would change drastically the composition of Congress. All right, here's Douglas in Yantic. Hi, Douglas, you're on the air. Hey, hey hi there. Um... I just wanted to say that you ought to stop the, the savings madness. Uh, I, I don't agree with it. But the main thing is, uh, well, I like to design and build sundials, for example. Yeah. I have a, I have a sundial wristwatch even that I got when I was retired. Uh, and it just throws my whole life in chaos to do that. But to be serious, uh, another way of looking at everything is to reference noontime where the sun is you know, like high noon you know yeah and that would be at 12 not one not one or, okay so i and, i would just want to go back then to the, then the daylight yeah the daylight just ch- changes with the years on either end you know it's like a gaussian curve and uh-huh. you, you just adjust your life to that instead of trying to force it like the school buses and when you work and things like that. All right. So I'm not even sure exactly what argument you're making, but so would you say, uh, I mean, you'd like to keep the the time at least at one particular setting as opposed to changing it twice a year? I would like to have it at standard time. Standard time. Standard time. All right. So that that's when the sun is pretty close to due south and it's the midday Mm -hmm. and it would be midday with the sun light evenly distributed throughout the year. I hear you. It would just it would vary at the the setting and rising times. I feel as though the sundial constituency isn't a powerful lobby in American public life. I could be wrong, but I just feel like, you know, they the sundial uh, subculture of America has never organized itself into a potent political force. I could be wrong. I, I'm going to talk to Natalie in West Hartford now. Hi Natalie. Hi, how are you, Colin? I am reasonably well. How are you? I'm okay. Um, I was just calling because I wanted to make a comment about the time change in the fall um, as opposed to the spring. All right. Um, my children, I have three children, and they are all in school now, elementary and middle. Mm-hmm. But when I was um, a mom of toddlers and babies, um, the time change in the fall was a godsend because 
we didn't really have a schedule that we were keeping to. Mm-hmm. So even though we fell back an hour, I kept my kids on the same schedule, giving me as an adult an extra hour at nighttime. So even though it was seven o'clock, it was really eight o'clock in their minds, or if it was seven o'clock, it was really six o'clock. I'm not sure which way the time went with with what I just did with the time, <laughs> but it just it gave me an extra hour every night. All right. With them, being, with them being in bed at the same time. So I loved it in the fall. In the spring, I cannot stand it. <laughs> well, I it mean, just, it just proves that we're all wired a little bit differently. Um, I was trying to figure out how cocktail hour factors into all that, but it's it's too complicated. We've got trains going in opposite directions. All right. So um, anything that makes cocktail hour arrive more quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to me to be a, a healthy step. All right, here's Peter. You know, I said nobody likes it. Uh, well, that was simply an invitation. I like it either way, either yeah. way. I I love to get an hour in the fall. I like oh, we get an extra hour so I can do more work. But then I I, I hated getting dark two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, so I, I like it when you get more sunlight. But I do like I don't like the the. Uh, the losing of the hour. So I think if you're tied with uh, farmers, don't have to worry about a clock. They don't have to. They have to. I guess they have to worry about when the Blue Seal store opens. You know, for the co-op to get their seed or something. But uh, if you're not tied to a clock, you, you can adjust. But I think I like getting the hour in the fall. But I hate it when it gets dark at three o'clock. But I like it getting dark at nine o'clock. You see the fireworks at ten thirty. You know, I mean, if it were, if fireworks were at mid, if uh, fireworks were in the more uh, in the winter, we'd have them at five o'clock in the at night because it's pitch dark at five. So I uh, I like it either way. I think I look look forward to the spring and springing ahead because then we it's a normal sunset at at six. Uh, I think anything that goes pat below six o'clock and the sun sets at, at five thirty that's just uh, not right. It has to. I think I really uh, look forward to having uh, the sunset at you know, seven, eight, nine. That's a normal time. For the sunset, All right. You know? So I I think what we've heard for here. I mean, when I envisioned opening the phones up on this topic. Groups of people I did not envision hearing from would be sundial fanciers and people who are especially concerned about when the fireworks start. <laughs> but I could I just I just want to say one last thing about all this. And Douglas, I'm sorry, I would have loved to, or David, I would have loved to talk to you about the gas tax another time. There isn't any extra anything. All right, there are 24 hours in the day. There's as much sunlight as there is. You can't get extra sunlight by moving the clocks around. You can't get an extra hour by moving the clocks around. There's exactly as much time as there is. Nothing that you do, no manipulation, creates anything extra. I sound like Danny Haar somehow. That's disturbing. I have to go lie down. All right. Thanks for uh, all the help that uh, people like Scott Breedy and Kion Wolf and Bitsy Kaplan uh, gave me today. 